Today on MVP, we'll be talking with Felicia Hatcher, founder of Black Tech Week and Cold Fever, an initiative to rid black communities of innovation deserts. We'll chat with Felicia about the urgency of increasing entrepreneurship and the steps to closing the technology gap among African Americans. Hey, Felicia. Uh, thanks for joining me on MVP today. Um, I'm very happy to have you. Um, happy to talk to a fellow Floridian about their ventures in tech and entrepreneurship. So thank you for making the time for us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course, of course. So like me and you kind of go way back to we... Um, we, I, I feel like I met you back when I was like still living in Tallahassee. I was going to Florida State. Yeah. And yeah. you were doing, time. yes, you were working on Feverish and um, mm-hmm. the your ice cream and popsicle company. And I kind of want to get into that. I know you're working on a lot of different things now, and but I kind of want to get, you know, how, hear the backstory of how you kind of started in entrepreneurship. I don't know if a lot of people know that story or are familiar with Feverish. Um, but why did you yeah. decide to get into to launch Feverish and how did you feel like running that company prepared you for becoming a tech and a tech entrepreneur? Yeah, it, um, you know, it was, it, it was a combination of things as to why, um, my husband Derek and I started Feverish. Uh, one, I lost my job in 2008 when the economy tanked and uh, they were laying laying people off, weren't renewing our contract, and I moved back to Florida with my husband to my parents' house and had this idea that I just could not let go of, you know, and I, like, often tell people sometimes, like, a good-paying job stands in the way of you following your dreams just as much as a bad-paying job because I, I, like, I really, truly loved what I was doing at the time. Like, there were some compromises that I had started to make that I wasn't, like, fully on board with. But overall, like, if, you know, if the Wall Street people didn't screw America, <laughs> I probably would not be on the phone with you, and we would not be talking about feverish or co fever or black. Like, we probably just wouldn't, you know? And so it was that. It was also coupled with the fact that, um, you know, it was just a – at the beginning, I was just, I just want to see where this idea is going to go. Like, no, had some crazy plans of, like, what are the possibilities, but not, like, it wasn't a long-term vision for, like, selling gourmet popsicles and bringing on a bunch of, like, Fortune 500 clients and opening up a shop and, like, like it just, like, none of what ended up happening was a part of the beginning dream. Like, I would love to tell people it was, but it just wasn't. And, um, cause I was just like, I'm just going to do this thing. I'm going to, it's going to make me some money. Um, I'm going to have some fun, uh, cause it was just a really shitty time in America. And I want to put smiles on other people's faces, but most importantly, like I want to put a smile on my face and I'm just going to keep doing this until I can find another job in my field. And I, I just couldn't. And it started to grow, you know, and it was a big learning curve for, Myself and my husband, like, we love desserts. Well, I love desserts. Like, I'm obsessed with desserts. We got married at a donut shop, in, like, in Portland, Oregon. And I I just, but I had no food experience. My husband had no food experience. Like, we both worked at, like, fast food restaurants when we were teenagers, and that's kind of the full extent of it. But I, I worked in marketing. Uh, I worked in marketing for tech companies. I worked in experiential marketing. And it just dawned on me at one point, like, let's put these two worlds together and it's not this separate thing. And, um, you know, there's this whole kind of 
old school food, mobile vending industry, and then there's everything that I knew. Social media was just starting to become like this thing that people highly respected, and I was just like, let's just put all of our worlds together and kind of see where this thing was going to go, and it and it and it took off. I mean, lots of headache and lots of frustration and lots of failure and lots of mistakes, but it also took off um, beyond our wildest dreams as well. And do you feel like that prepared you for like the next level of yourself? Do you feel like all of the, like just even stumbling upon like, hey, I think I'm going to do this just kind of on a whim, just it, it set the the building blocks for you transitioning into tech? Well, you were kind of already into tech, but like to make that, you know, forge forward with yeah, that. Yeah, I, I would say it definitely did. And, and it, was a, it was a few things, you know, it was, um, one, being an entrepreneur in Miami um, at a time when Miami was trying to figure out how to uh, turn itself into a respectable, respected startup and tech ecosystem uh, and being an entrepreneur and being like a black entrepreneur at that point, it was interesting, right? Um, you know, we started Code Fever, which is the organization that runs Black Tech Week in our co-working space. Um, while we were still running feverish. And, uh, and again, it was just one of those things where we're just going to do this one-off event. We're going to train our employees um, on, like, how to code, because Derek and I knew how. We also had a bunch of friends that knew how. And, you know, we just wanted to expose our employees to these possibilities. We knew that they weren't going to be in popsicles forever. We knew that we personally weren't going to be in that industry forever either. And so we just wanted to do something community-centric, um, and really for like our people, just so that they could understand, like there's this whole world kind of sprouting up, there's money, there's opportunities, and our community is completely missing out. Um, there's that. We also received VC funding um, for Feverish to like expand, like crazily expand our company. And that was, a, we had a lot of challenges with that. And so one kind of being, you know, successful entrepreneurs that also still had very limited access and networks and when like a big check came our way and not having someone, you know, I didn't have anyone in my family that was a, a lawyer. Uh, my dad had been an entrepreneur for almost 20 years at that point. He thought it was a scam, you know, it's <laughs> like, y'all want to invest how much into it? Like a pot. Cause you know, like being black and running a popsicle company was kind of like a lot of people laughed at that to begin with and then when it was just like no like someone seriously wants to invest in our company my dad my parents all and they all thought it was a scam like they were which, is, like, which is crazy because like, that, that really was just happened. like 10 years ago you know and like now you see right. people getting their food companies acquired or getting like brokering these seven-figure deals for their popcorn or their lemonade or something like that but right. 10 years right, ago that right. was like very it was unheard of and it's just crazy how much things have changed in just a matter of a few years and yeah but the same thing like when we first started feverish like the whole gourmet food truck industry as we know did not exist you know like we were the first like food truck that was um like people could follow us on twitter and all. we were the first ones doing that in miami and that's because we spent time in la and people were doing that and, um, and, and so like, there was all these things like now when I explain it to people, they're like, Oh, of course. I'm like, no, this was 10 years ago when people were like, wait, what? I got to follow you where? Like, no, where are you going to be? And like, no, you got to follow us on Twitter. You'll find that our, our, our address, like where we're going to be changes all the time. So it was definitely a, a good stepping stone, but like all of those experiences kind of led to, 
um, one, what we do now, but then most importantly, like the reason why we do it um, and the reason and the way that we do what we do, you know? And so um, turning Code Fever into an actual nonprofit and the students that we've been able to work with, but most importantly, like turning Miami um, and actually building Miami's black startup ecosystem, right? Building really an actual black startup ecosystem in the entire state of Florida. Um, we didn't set out to do these things, but it just kind of happened because we just wanted to build a community, you know, and we knew that our community as far as black entrepreneurship, as far as like how we engage with, with technology or the fact that we don't, um, it's so multifaceted and we wanted to create something that supported all of that um, but then also gave us the tools so that we can um, level the playing field, but, like, most importantly, be competitive. Like, I'm not even on the equality conversation. Like, I want us, I want our community to be as competitive as possible within this space, um, and equality is just, like, not enough and not the right conversation we should be having, if that makes any sense. No, it, it absolutely does, right? So, I, I mean, I think a, a moment for me that was, I guess, similar to what you're saying right now is I was taking a um, a taxi or like a cab or something from the airport in Chicago to my house. And I was um, talking to the driver, a black woman. She probably was in her like mid to late 30s and but a pretty smart, savvy woman. And so we're just talking and whatnot. She's telling me about all these like like electronics and things she needs to buy for like upcoming holidays or birthdays and things like that. And I'm like, uh, have you tried Groupon? Um, and just buying this stuff on Groupon. Cause she's, she's, she expressed to me, Oh, these things are going to be so expensive. I'm like, you can get these things for a fraction of the price, um, on Groupon. And she goes, what's Groupon? And mind you, Groupon is based in Chicago. And she's lived in Chicago yeah. her whole life. And so she like we had actually passed by Groupon on the way to take me home. And I'm just like, you know, people are not only missing out on the conversation, but they're you know there's economic disparities that are resulting as a result of this. Like we're gonna get left behind. Like it's bigger than her not knowing where to buy a TV at, right? Like if she yeah. knew this company existed or that she had the capacity to possibly get in the door there or could get the skills to work at a company like this, how could that change her life? Of course, of course. Um, or just use or being able to just like use it, like you said, right? right? Like I I mean we're having a lot of those conversations right now because like the Super Bowl is coming to Miami next year. Yeah, that's gonna be um, wild. And like <laughs> right, I don't but like the state Go the ahead. stadium is is in Miami Gardens, mm -hmm. and so that's the most prosperous black community in all of Miami-Dade County. It has, like, the largest percentage of home ownership um, as far as, like, black owner, home ownership in, in the county. There are, I think there are only, like, two hotels, right? And so uh. from a hotel standpoint, it's not fully equipped. But, um, you know, Airbnb is like a possibility and people can essentially pay their whole mortgage in, in the span of renting their home out for like a week, right, for the Super Bowl. And that's not the conversation that's being had, which is really unfortunate. Um, and I can go on on a whole other tangent about like the NWCP and Airbnb partnership that rolled out. And, and, and that was met with some really very valid like um, um, 
opposition to it, but like the greater opportunity that exists for us to seriously be able to take advantage of these opportunities the way that like our counterparts are taking advantage of it is is night and day you know and I think sometimes we waste a lot of time having the wrong kind of conversation or putting the wrong time kind of energy instead of saying like how can we take advantage of this too because like my dad and my uncle I helped them set up their their second homes that they had that they were renting to people that just wasn't working out. I helped them set up both of their homes on Airbnb. They went from making $1,600 and $1,800 a month on rent to now making over $4,000 a month, like consistently by renting out on Airbnb. And now they're just like, now now you can't tell them they're, they're not like Airbnb, <laughs> like moguls, right? Like they're buying other houses to specifically do this, but they, they live in a beach town. Um, and it just makes sense, right? But, like, it was one of those things where it just did not click and it was just constantly kind of going over their head because, like, no, there's this only this one pathway to being able to, like, acquire real estate or, um, you know, have renters kind of come in and you're going to only make an extra $300 and, like, now they're making an extra $2,000 a month. And now what do they do with that, right? So when we talk about shrinking the wealth gap, when we tra- talk about economic development in our communities like we have to have a different lens other than like how many people are we going to train to code like we there's a there's a different kind of conversation that we now have to have um because it's not like our like black communities and brown communities are literally being consumed by tech companies whether we realize it or not and if we're not careful and we're starting to see those articles right and we're starting to see a little bit of those conversations but i think from like local government and local um, people that are kind of in power positions aren't fully understanding like what that means and most importantly like how to take advantage of it now and not like look up five years now five years or ten years later and be like oh my god like we should have done x y and z so how do we further that conversation what is like the steps that we can take within our own community to yeah to get people to to get have to get, get people to understand and have those light bulb moments to see like what you did with your dad and seeing like a larger picture and that like technology whether you're leveraging technology or working in technology uh or just you know careers of the future like how do we get yeah. people to understand like to to have a sense of urgency about you know taking the next steps for themselves yeah, you know, for for us, we're getting ready to do a series of, like, training classes around, like, Airbnb for homes and Airbnb experiences. And so, like, that's one thing, right? That's very easy to do. It's find a space, get prototypes with people, don't get discouraged by the people that don't show up or don't understand, and just, like, literally share it as many people as you can. You know, like, that's, that's at the basic level of what we can do. I think... Um, you know, being able to create things that allow people that influence policy more to better understand what this all means and the future of it, um, that's, that's a challenge, but that's also what needs to happen, right? So I think for a lot of what we have been doing over the past five years and other people that are kind of like ecosystem builders, right? We've been doing the convenings and the conferences, creating the content, things like that. But it hasn't been enough. That's been a very much of like a grassroots kind of bottom-up kind of activity, right? And we've been able to make some noise, got a media, and things like that. But from a policy standpoint, very little has changed 
I mean, very little has been done to influence policy so that it is favorable and kind of meets us in the middle. I mean, that's kind of what we are trying to, like, navigate through now and kind of shift our focus to. Um, that's where you're starting to see, I think, like, like more organizations. You have, like, Yeshi with uh, Data for Black Lives. You have Black Tech Mecca that actually does the scoring of black ecosystems across the United States, which has never been done in 2019. How is that possible? But whatever. And so you're starting to see this shift of saying, all right, in the absence of, you know, VCs or angel investors that are going to invest in our companies, like procurement opportunities can do just as well for black entrepreneurs and black startup founders. Um, Making sure that our state, local and federal governments are actually setting up innovation funds because they already have the money, um, making sure that when they are creating funding opportunities for small businesses, that they're looking at the way, what the requirements are and making a shift in the language to better support um, startup founders because the metrics of success are different. Um, you know, the, the assets that they may or may not have are completely different. Most startups are mostly their assets are in their IP as opposed to physical and tangible things, right? And so, like, there's a whole different kind of conversation and activity that we need to start shifting to so that we can really start making moves in this space. And most importantly, like, they really actually start to impact our community. And, like, you know, I've run a coding organization for five years. Like, we have to move on from this, like, conversation that launching a coding boot camp or... is going to solve all the problems because it's not, you know, and I think people are starting to see that. Um, And that's a, that's a twofold conversation. One, people weren't patient enough Two, people thought that funding a bunch of programs that for really cute kids, but not thinking that like, you know, a five or six year old going through a coding program is not going to have an economic impact on the community for maybe 15 to 20 years. Um, instead of funding an adult coding program, right, or an adult technical or vocational program where they can have an immediate economic impact because they are actually employable at that age. You know, those are the kind of shifts that I think we have to start seeing and having some real conversations about, but most importantly, having the right kind of money conversations on, like, how long does this stuff actually take? What does it actually financially require us to invest so that we can actually see the returns and see the impact in the communities that we want to have. So I have two questions as a result of what you just said. So one, I'm curious to know about like your thought process, you and your husband and your team's process and discerning in which direction you're going to go next for code fever. What, like, you know, we can get into like what's next for you guys, but just, you know, I imagine that when you first started Cold Fever, you didn't think about, oh, we're going to be doing workshops for Airbnb, right? Under that umbrella, mm-hmm. right? So, like, how do you discern, like, what is the immediate opportunity or what is the next steps as far as, like, where we're going to go with this? Do you just stumble upon new opportunities or do you just, do things organically pop up or do you say, Hey, there's, there's a really big opportunity here and we can move quickly on acting on it. What does that look like? And then secondly, I I think, you know, I, I didn't have this, this line of questioning, uh, you know, on on my lineup, but it sounds like you potentially have a future in policy. And is that something that is on the table for you and something that you're possibly open to? Yeah, so let me answer the second question first. 
I don't ever want to become a politician. Um, it's been coming up a lot now. I just, I think where, um, where I am and um, kind of the lane that we've built um, will allow me to be able to, to do more without losing a lot of like my voice. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing against politicians. And I, there are quite a few that I know that like are do a really good job, but let's like be honest, right. About like what actually happens and the deals that you sometimes have to make that don't allow you to be as vocal as you need to be. Um, and I think there's so many of us kind of in this, um, kind of tech social justice or innovation or community social justice space that allows us like more flexibility. Right. And so I, I like this, right. Um, what I mentioned before, I'm now starting to realize the tools that I need to have in place to better influence policy makers so that they can do better at their job, right? And so that's kind of where I want to be. Um, but, you know, I don't know. That might change in 10 years. I have no idea. But, like, for the next few years, definitely not. I think um, as, as it relates to, like, how we've kind of looked at stuff, a lot of it has been, like, asking ourselves or even being confronted with, like, what's standing in our way of, like, really being able to try, like, help our communities, right? And and so a lot of that has been that, right? So we started a, a coding organization five years ago um, focused on, like, computer programming, um, basic digital literacy because people didn't want to hear that. They just wanted people to build apps and, like, these kids don't know what a backspace button is. Like, we got to take five steps back. Uh, and then, like, how to navigate a startup ecosystem as a person of color. And what we quickly realized, and I think what makes us different, is, like, we have no problem telling people, like, this is what we failed at. Like, and this just did not work. Um, and I think we've been also a little fortunate to find funders or kind of cultivate relationships with our funders that have allowed us to be a little bit experiential in this space um, and not one of those things where, like, oh, I invested in black people or this black organization didn't work out we're moving on and we're never going to do this and we hold um funders like really accountable about like that and like stopping that shit for lack of better words and so um so what we quickly realized with co-fever when we first started is like there are a lot of educational nonprofits that are in this kind of train and pray space right like you're training and then you're like praying that there's a job on the other end of this or there's an internship or there's an opportunity or there's a mentor, like a long list of stuff. And so we were just like, all right, well, let's create like these, like the actual pathways and access and put that like right in front of our young people, right in front of their parents, right in front of all the entrepreneurs that we, we know um, that need this help that people weren't taking Miami serious. And so that's where Black Tech Week came from, right? Like at the at the most basic level of like why that conference started and existed here in Miami is because of that. Like we wanted to create like a magnetic force in Miami that attracted all these people here that also helped people realize like there are smart black people in Miami. There are there's serious business that happens here. Like sure you can go to Miami Beach, but like you can also come and do business here. And you can invest in our community, you can invest in our entrepreneurs, here they are. Um, and by the way, then this opened up all these, like, really amazing opportunities for the young people that we were training to then get direct access to these people. But, like, most importantly, like, if, you know, nothing that we do in a classroom from a technical training standpoint matters, if, like, a young person doesn't see 
themselves inside the tech space. So it's like really important for us to be able to introduce our students to like a Justin Washington, right? Like the first time he came to Black Tech Week, he was like 25 years old. Um, QA engineer at Snapchat that's from Detroit that's also a DJ, but he was 25. And then like once our young people saw him, like it immediately clicked. None of this is like groundbreaking. That's what mentors do, right? And that's what bringing, you know, people, um, notable people into classrooms do, but we just, you're just, you're surprised at how much that, like, that doesn't happen. And then the same thing from being able to influence and impact entrepreneurs. But then most importantly for us, it was, you know, bringing the CEO of Y Combinator, um, yeah, Y Combinator, Michael Seibel to Miami, who for three years kept asking us, like, why are you doing this into Miami and would turn us down? And so like, it was like all of that stuff, but then, not just the startup conversations, but then like we also have to understand like what this actually means from for for our community, and that we can't play the startup game the same way people in Silicon Valley are playing the startup game, because we literally have kids that are being accepted in the coding programs that are shot and killed before their first day, which is a reality of what happened here in Miami with a young girl that was being that got accepted in the Black Girls Code. She never made it to her first day. She was eight years old. And so as much as we want to play this startup game, there is also a real responsibility. And, like, everything that we're doing and everything that we're building has to move faster than bullets. And if it doesn't, like, what are we all doing this for? You know what I mean? And so it's a lot, but it's been a lot kind of thrown at us and a lot that we've had to kind of figure out over and over again. Um, but a lot of it has just been kind of been cutting through the BS of saying, yeah, this is not okay, this is not going to work. Uh, and this is what is going to work, or this is what the runway that we need to kind of figure out, um, is this actually going to have some measurable impact in our community? Uh, but having real conversations with ourselves and real conversations with the people around us. So one that I'm curious to know, like, I mean, you're talking about, you know, conversations within our community and both in our, you know, the communities we live in, as well as like the black tech ecosystem, what is one change or one thing that really frustrates you or one thing that you really wish you could see culturally change about the way we interact as black people in the startup space, as well as black people who yeah. are living in black communities? Oh man, Amanda, that's a, that's a whole other podcast. Girl, I got time. Um, I got time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, you know, I would I would love for us to, um, I think as we convene, that it's really important that we do these convenings um, in our communities. And, you know, we're doing, conf- like, and we're not the only one that does a black technology or innovation or startup conference, right? There are, there are a ton of them sprouting up all over the place. But I think for as much as we can start actually doing these in black communities, because People fly into town, they spend money, they need places to stay, they need places to hang out. But the economic impact of what it means to have people come into a city, sometimes hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people, like let's make sure those dollars are actually being spent in our communities. So that, that like whatever conversations we're talking about building whatever inside the conference actually spills out into our community so we can have a direct impact. Um, that's something that I would like to see change. I think um, there's a lot, you know, there, there, there's a lot that's, that's going on, uh, but there's a lot that needs to also be celebrated. I think it's so easy for 
Um, and I'm in these conversations, I think you're, you're in these conversations all the time, right? Where yeah. we immediately go to like everything that's wrong about like the black startup community or black startup entrepreneurs. And I'm just like, no, everyone needs to get in where they fit in and we all need to win, right? Just yeah. as many um, entre- people that you need to start and launch startups, you need even more people to be working in these tech companies, getting high paid jobs so that they can in turn, you know, get get their their equity like invested invested in these communities so they can turn around and be angel and VCs, right? And so like all of these things need to be happening at the same time. It's not one thing over the other. And I think that's something that always frustrates me as as well. And then um I think the the last thing is which I kinda hinted at, right? Like it's like one coding program is not going to solve all problems. One shining star startup founder with an exit is not going to solve all all the problems either. Like we have to really truly be thinking about this from a community standpoint, right? And so when we talk about smart cities, like smart cities for whom? And like why aren't black communities a part of the smart cities conversation? And they should be. Um, and our investment dollars and who we hold accountable needs to be invested in a way that is actually making our community stronger and not just talking about these pipelines to an internship or job opportunity. But if your community is not churning out innovation, like none of this actually really matters. Right. And none of the the one-off initiatives need to, need to, one need to be mapped out so that we can show like really clear pathways and like what this actually means when you live in a community and innovation and startup activity and like all of that stuff happens in our community. And I get it. Like we're doing it. Like we've doubled down on, on Overtown and it's been a, it's been a real, real struggle. Um, you know, I have like, we launched a co-working space. There are days where I'm like, why the hell did I do this? Um, it's really, really frustrating. Um, but, but like, it, there's a bigger picture to this, you know, and I think that's the part that we just have to kind of constantly kind of put the pieces pieces together. But th- that's it. Those are some of my frustrations. Okay, so I'm going to, you know, change gears, shift gears a little bit. And I want to talk about the fact that you were both a wife and a mother. And yeah. I know... I'm just curious to know if you have any advice, because I have a lot of friends who are mothers or wives, and they are trying to venture into entrepreneurship, or maybe they've been in entrepreneurship for a while, and I feel like that struggle or that 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 uh, that journey is a lot different when you're mm-hmm. accountable for other little humans, right? Um, and so yeah. I, I'm wondering if there's any piece of advice that you might give to women who aspire for both or who are struggling to achieve the balance between the two. Yeah, I think um, first thing, and it's funny because when I saw your your email with the questions, I was like, oh, she used the B word. Um, I don't believe in balance. Okay, um, that's fair. As, as, much, as much as you can throw that out the window, um, you will find more sanity in your life. Uh, and that's whether you're a parent or, or not, right? Whether you are married or not, I think it's just, um, it's it will drive you into sanity trying to figure out think that there is this perfect balance between things like so you definitely you have to choose um and when i had my daughter my daughter's uh five my son is eight months or will be eight months really soon and 
I quickly realized, like, I could not do all of this, and I was literally, like, driving myself personally into the ground. And you have to ask yourself, like, why am I actually doing this? What do I have to prove to other people? And what are the things that are most important to me that are, like, non-negotiables? And so, like, I have my non-negotiables, right? My kids come absolutely first. I can always cancel a meeting or reschedule a meeting or that face-to-face meeting now has to become a conference call. Or even today, like, my daughter's soccer practice was running late. I'm like, hey, can we do this 30 minutes later? Um, But I, like, I can't pull myself away from her soccer practice, right? Or I can't cancel that doctor's appointment. And so that became, like, a non-negotiable for me. And that meant that some people hated me, right? Some people didn't understand. You may even be called flaky at times, but, like, you have to set those boundaries for yourself. And and so that's, like, always my advice to people. Pick the two to three things that are most important, and everything else just kind of gets in where it fits in. Um, The other part of that is, like, outsource like crazy. Like, you do not have to be superwoman or superman um, outsourcing exists for a, a, a reason, and I use it, right? I have an assistant. Um, I have I use Handy, which is an app like Uber for house cleaning. They come once a week. My husband and I do not fight about house cleaning. If we did, we probably would be divorced a long time ago because we just have – guys are messy, right? Sometimes women are messy, but guys are messy, and it's something that we, we don't fuss about. But it's also not the best use of our time. I also hate it. Right. And so, like, there's a lot of domestic stuff that I don't register to. I'm like, all right, I will find a way to figure out, like, how to budget and pay for this. And every single time, like, these things have paid for themselves, you know. And so, like, for me, it was just like a long time ago, I was like, I'm not trying to be the perfect mom and I mess up and I have to apologize to my kids. You just do, you know, and like, you'll be okay and life will, will go on. But, I think it's really important to to set those boundaries of like what's important to you. Try and outsource and get help for the, the things that you suck at, and sometimes you suck at things as a parent or a spouse. And um, and then I think just be very very honest about yourself about what you actually want out of life, you know, and what that actually means. And I've had plenty of times where I've just like I've complained, you know, like I was on a plane at least three times a month a lot all of last year and I I kept saying to myself like why like but I was like I asked for this. Like at one point in my life I asked God for this and I asked the universe for like this. And so I'm here. And what that means when you ask for those things that you gotta take the good with it and you also gotta take the bad because it's the thing that you actually want. Um, and when we ask for things and we're not specifically clear, sometimes it comes and it looks like this thing that may not quite be what it is because we haven't been 110% honest with ourselves with, like, what we want. And I'm, not, I'm, like, I'm trying not to sound like all Oprah Super Soul. No, we, like lo- we love Oprah been. Super Soul. Give us more. Give us more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so touch on every episode, and I've talked to, this, uh, talked to every guest about this, but, like, a big proponent of the show and still figuring out what that looks like and how to seamlessly integrate it in is like wellness as a form of business development. And I'm going to keep stressing it mm-hmm. because I mean, the mental part of this is of entrepreneurship and just launching any new venture, whether it is a business or just a project is half the battle. And so figuring out that and like developing the emotional honesty and integrity with yourself mm-hmm. is really critically important to keeping your sanity and, and, and just trying to get through the week. Yeah. No, it's heavy. Like entrepreneurship is, is really heavy. 
and there are a lot of us that cry. <laughs> like, I, I, I like I, I told I was speaking at an event not too long ago, and I I was telling people I was like I I quit Black Tech Week every January. Like my business partner, he laughs, but he's like I keep your text messages every year. And he's like I, you quit every January. You quit. He's like I give you three days, and then you're back. And but it's true. Like I literally like I don't want to do this shit anymore. Because everything comes at me, right, in January. We feel like we don't have enough time. Sponsors are taking a long time. Do we raise enough money? Is there enough ticket sales? Do I remember to feed my kid? Like, all of this stuff, right? And that's not just, like, me, but that's most entrepreneurs. Like, life is going to punch you in the gut time and time again because you are doing the thing that you are set on this life to do, right? And... I cannot remember the name of the guy's book, and I don't want like, to curse on your show, but it's The fine. Art of Withholding Fs, right? The, the Subtle Art of Withholding Fucks, right? And so in his book, he talks about um, it's not like what we've been told in life about following your dreams is like follow your passion. And his thing is like, no, like you have to um, ask yourself, like, what is is this worth me suffering for, right? Because that's where you sh- that's the thing that you should really be doing. Is it worth like the headaches, the heartbreaks, the constant no's, the stress, the um, having friends like end friendships because you're never around, like having people, you know, like all of that stuff that is a really real part of entrepreneurship. And I know you know this, Amanda, because you've been doing this for a long, like I've watched you, you've been doing this for a long time. And it comes with a lot of sacrifice and a lot of pain. And it's the thing, like, you have to not ask yourself, like, what is what is the thing that you're passionate about? Like, what are you willing to suffer for? Because you are literally going to suffer. Like, money is not going to come in. Bills are not going to get paid. Then they do get paid. And then, like, you, you decide to bet the house again. And, like, it's this constant thing, right? And so, and our education system does not prepare us for any of that. And that's what really makes or breaks like entrepreneurs. It's like it's surviving all the BS. It's not so much about celebrating, but then when you do get celebrated, you know that like I absolutely deserve every single bit of that because people literally don't know like how much you struggle and how much you like you sacrifice. Like the first two years with my like my daughter was born like extremely premature. She weighed one point four pounds. We were building code fever at that time. So anything that we needed to do, like we would literally be living in Miami and driving all the way to Delray Beach to drop our kid off because I could not trust anyone to watch our kid because she was premature and she had like all these challenges. But we were also trying to build something that meant something to us and meant something to the community. You know what I mean? And so like people sacrifice in the dark that we just have no idea what they're sacrificing in the name, um, in the hopes that like their dreams are coming true, but that's what that is, you know? And so like, as much as we can have therapy and take care of ourselves and support each other and like clap for our friends, like clap for our friends, clap for strangers. Like we have to, because it is, um, it is soul breaking work to be an entrepreneur. And then when you, you, put social entrepreneur on the other on top of that it's it's just it's a whole other layer of like insanity and craziness and i'm an echo and green fellow and you know for the past two years like during our uh, oh my gosh uh, uh, all fellows retreat like the end of that like you got a hundred people 200 people sitting around like crying their eyes out right 
but they provide such a sacred space for entrepreneurs. But you're also surrounded about a bunch of people that, you know, you just saw this person when Forbes 30 under 30 and they're, you know, we're in the middle of whatever city and they're crying their eyes out because it's just not really what people think it is. And they're holding their business together by like bobby pins and scotch tape, right? But like, and they're doing the best that they can, but like people around them are either loving them and rallying around them or hating on every single thing that they've ever done. And then that person sits in the middle and just like, I have all this thing stuff going on and my parent is in the hospital. And these are all like real, real realities of like the things that are constantly thrown at entrepreneurs. And so like, I'm always celebrating entrepreneurs. Like if anything out of black tech week, it allows us to be able to do that because we just personally know how hard it is to build like any and everything and put your heart into it every day and get your heart ripped out at least once a month. At least once a month. At least, at least twice, sometimes twice, sometimes three times. (laughs) Especially when you got to sign checks, right? I, I was yeah. like, I was some people like people brag about that. Oh, I get to sign people's checks, but there's a real responsibility to that. Yeah, right? I talked. I talked to a good friend of mine who he probably has a staff of about six, seven people right now. But he's just like, mm-hmm. when payday comes around, like he knows he's going to be able to cover it and everything. But it's just it, the real stress of like people need their checks. And yeah. we have to do everything between the between these two this two week period or this month long period to ensure that we we get these people paid because their their kids are depending on it their parents are depending on it of it's course. their livelihood. It's a huge responsibility, you know. It's a huge. It's not an Instagram moment. It's like it's it's very it's very real to not just know that like you showing up every day and like fighting and raising money and running your business. It's not just your family. It's, it's, it's a other people's family, you know, and if you can't do your best work because you're not personally taking care of yourself, that's a heavy weight on our shoulders, you know? And I think as, as like black and brown people, we already got the weight of our ancestors that we got to carry everywhere we go. And then when you couple, um, you know, employees on top of that and you couple, angel investors and VCs and making sure that they have a return and your customers and your clients and all of that, the pressure is definitely really real, right? And suicide is not talked about. I mean, I think there's starting to be more of a conversation about like entrepreneurs and startup founders and like suicide and burnout and, and just like this, this, this game that we're all like a part of and trying to strive and achieve X, Y, and Z. And like, what does it really mean at the end of the day? And, like, for the last year, I've been asking myself that, like, and constantly, almost weekly kind of checking in, like, am I doing this for the right reasons? Am I doing, am I still happy with the work that I'm doing? And I struggled with that last year. That was a question that I couldn't answer for myself um, all of last year. Um, But, you know, you just kind of keep moving and you kind of figure out and you make changes and saying, am I doing this? Um, and what does this actually like, mean to the broader scope of things? And most importantly, like, am I okay? You know, is my family okay? Are my staff okay? But like, am I okay? Yep, that's really real. And I, I definitely can relate to that. And I mean, it's a big part of the reason why I decided to kind of delve into the podcast and like doing something for myself and like having these, like, mm-hmm. we need to have these conversations anyway, probably yeah. personally <laughs> off the phone, off the, off a podcast. But I thought this would be a great, you know, learning experience and, and also just 
a chance to relate to other people who have kind of been there before who are doing the same things and to tell the other side of entrepreneurship, the things that you see outside of the magazines and the accolades and the awards. So I appreciate you, you know, being frank and candid about like what you've been experiencing. Yeah. Thank you for creating this platform. Um, And I really, first of all, I was like, I haven't talked to you forever. I haven't seen you forever. So girl, I've been off the grid. I've been off the grid. (laughs) (laughs) I like, honestly, like I really, like I was starting to burn out and I just kind of was just like, I had to ask myself the same questions, like, especially coming from the the marketing background and PR background. It's like, you know, if you were never in another magazine, if you were never, if you never won another award, uh, you know, would you be at peace with what you're doing? You know, like, would you still be as satisfied with it? And, you know, for some of the things I was doing, I was like, no. Um, like yeah. it's it's not it's not worth it for me, and then I I really had to discern like where I was going with my career and and what projects that were most important and most close to my heart, and take some time away from everything and everyone to just work on me, and work on the things that actually gave me some degree of fulfillment. Um, but I was burnt out heavy, and so I kind of, I fell back off of everything. Like, I was like, people were like, are you going to conferences? Are you going to Black Tech Week? Are you going to, you know, Afro Tech? I'm like, no. <laughs> I just I just didn't have the energy for it. I just didn't have the capacity for it. And I just needed to make sure everything was well with me and yeah. well with my companies, right? Like, you could show up to these things every year, and it looks good. It sounds good, but it ain't. Right. So you just got to take that step back when you need to. And I think a lot of people are f- afraid to do that. But, you know, your sustainability is or everything. Or don't know how to do it. Yeah. They've been doing it for so long that, like, it, they their identity is tied to it. So, you know, you have to have to step back and unlearn a lot of things. Like, you know, being being a workaholic is something that you have to unlearn. Like, oh, of course. So they had to take a step back and just kind of figure out what like life looks like outside of work. And um, it's so far so good. <laughs> so far yeah. so good. But um, yeah, so I have like one, you know, two last questions for you. Like I wanted to, we have a listener submitted questions for every episode. And so I wanted to run that by you. And then lastly, hear about what's next for you. So um, I'll go ahead and read this off to you. My name is Erica Harding, and I run Lismore, a professional women's wear brand that includes moisture wick fabric in the underarm area of dresses and jumpsuits to keep the working woman sweat, uh, sweat stain free throughout the workday. For the past six months, I've been struggling with my marketing strategies and getting my brand name out there. How do you advise I, I market my business outside of Facebook and Instagram ads and f- really find the right customers? Mm. Good question. Um, I think on the, on the marketing side, I would definitely, um, you know, Haro Help a Reporter Out is a really, really good resource I like to send people to. Um, free free press is like what we, especially me, like especially like go pretty hard off, like trying to find those opportunities for feverish. Like we didn't have a marketing budget like ever, but like being featured on the Today Show, being featured on the Cooking Channel, literally transformed our company. Um, and so like as much as you can um, look for those opportunities, I think 
for me, I have a bit of a PR background, you know, I, it, profe- professionally. So it made it a little bit easier for me to kind of figure out like how to pitch to journalists. But Haro is still a really good resource. I comb through it sometimes. A lot of times I'm just kind of sending it to entrepreneurs that I know that are like, oh my God, look at number six, like this works for you. But it's a really good resource. Journalists put, um, post on there. It's a newsletter three times a day. It comes to you five o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I think again at five. Um, they have different options, but the free one is still like really good. And it's all mostly journalists on short-term deadlines that are looking to, um, they need people to feature for their stories. They need people to interview. They need human interest stories. They need business stories. Like you name it, I've seen all kinds of stuff under the sun. I think that's a really, really good starting point. Um, if you have, I know she mentioned spending some money on ads, I think. So if you have a budget that you can hire a publicist, um, find someone that's really good, maybe kind of test them out on a smaller project before like you really double down on like a monthly retainer. But that has helped really well for us as well. Um, we use publicists during kind of ramping up for Black Tech Week. Um, we work with a publicist for our VC in residence program um, that got us some really good press in like Inc. and Entrepreneur and like some other stuff. But that, I, I would say, kind of worked out as much as possible. Um, what, but then I think you really need to fully understand, like, who your target audience is. And most of the story, like, what's the story um, and what's your brand story that kind of brings everyone together so that you can actually start building um, affinity for, for the work that you're, you're doing. So I would say work on the storytelling component. Um, I would even say start putting out some content yourself. And then, um, and then work with um, Haro or like if you have a budget, uh, finding a publicist that you can work with to kind of help bring that all together and, and really help kind of shine a light on, on, on your business through some really good storytelling. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback off of that. And I, I think the biggest thing here is like figuring out how to build community around your brand before you mm-hmm. even get exposure, right? So deep diving into like who your target customers is and their personas, like what motivates them, what inspires them, like why they choose Lismore over any other brand is a big thing um, because it'll, it'll help, you know, you Erica in in discerning what decisions you're going to make, like where you're going to place, like whether you're going to be selling online and where the, if, if these customers shop online or if the type of woman that you're targeting actually needs to go into a store and buy these things. So they'll mm-hmm. make you some, make some, you know, baseline decisions like that. Secondly, I think if, you know, you're looking for the garner exposure, not just a publicist, but working with stylists um, who can get your clothes on celebrities, right? Because in turn, the media is going to cover them. Even if, you know, a publicist isn't involved, they're going to say who that person is wearing, if it's the right exposure opportunity or they're at at the right event. Um, And I think lastly, I think, you know, I, I think one thing that I see with a lot of small businesses and entrepreneurs is this need to you know, or desire to get as much exposure as possible. And, and that's great. But you really have to ask, is my business ready for that, right? I, you know, yeah. I want to say it's like the Groupon effect or whatnot. A lot of times small businesses sign up for these things. They put this big deal out there or, you know, their brand gets some exposure and they can't keep up with the orders, right? And so mm-hmm. I just want to encourage you. I know it could be frustrating right now because you're like, man, I just really want to start increasing sales. I want to see my products on more people. 
But, you know, everything got stymied, right? Like, sometimes you need this time to steadily grow and steadily, you know, gain exposure gradually over time in order for you to get, like, all your affairs together. And I don't even know what it might be, right? Like, I just know I've started up so many times and I thought I was ready for some shit and I wasn't. Right. And and that's not to say that's not I know that like, like I'm not that's I'm not to say because I know it too. <laughs> like it's not to say that's the case with, you know, Liz Moore, Erica's business or anything like that. But, you know, I, you know, I really try to get encourage entrepreneurs to see the opportunity in everything. So maybe you're you know, your brand your brand hasn't gotten the exposure yet because there are some other things that may like you need to work on, right? And it may have nothing to do with the quality of your product, the way you're running your business, but like, you, there's just unforeseeable things that are often out of your control. And so, you know, be patient with yourself and be patient with your business. Don't let the Internet rush you. Don't let the Internet rush you. Don't let these Instagram girls with their boutiques saying they made $100,000 in 40 minutes, like, rush you from growing a great brand. Because these things take time yeah. and it, it's okay for it to take a little longer than you think. Patience, please. Yes. So I just want to wrap up by just asking what's next for you. Like, is, is there something new with Code Fever or Black Tech Week? Or are you working on another project? But I'm sure our listeners would love to know, like, where they can find you next and, you know, how they could possibly reach out to you um, following the podcast. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're, we're getting ready to kick off our um, Black Tech Weekend national tour again. So we did seven cities last year. Um, we're doing seven to eight cities this year. So the first one is in Detroit. Um, so, I mean, stay tuned for that or check out Black Tech Week's um, website um, for the updates around the tour when that gets ready to kick off in June. And um, aside from that, I mean, we're working on um, a digital platform for, uh, well, a training platform for ecosystem builders. Um, that work with black and brown groups in cities and communities. So um, I don't have an official launch date for that, but that is going to kind of be um, a huge part of our tour um, this year and kind of how we roll that out to some other cities. So those are the two big things in addition to um, still running a space and everything else. But those are some ways that we are, are looking at scaling um, Don't that doesn't necessarily require us to physically um, be present in all of those cities, but still be able to kind of take what we've learned over five years um, and really help support the growth of um, black and brown startup ecosystems across the United States. That's dope. That's dope. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that rolls out. I hope you guys are able to come to Chicago. If not, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll make it We're down to Miami. We're looking at Chicago. We're okay. Chicago, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, keep please keep me posting on that. Now, if people want to find you on social media, um, what are your handles? Sure. I'm literally at Felicia Hatcher on everything because it's easy for me to remember. And aside from that, uh, Black Tech Week um, as well on everything as well. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Felicia. I think we had a great conversation Thank today. you, Amanda. I'm excited about your new ventures and this tour. Please keep me posted, and I will be in touch. Thanks for listening to MVP. If you'd like to hear more from me or our guests, visit mvpodcast.substack.com for exclusive content, updates, and announcements. And if you love the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us, or follow us on Instagram at the Amanda Span and MV Podcast. Thanks again, and see you next week.